Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Confirmation vote for Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court has been delayed as both sides agreed to a one-week FBI investigation into charges by Dr. Christine Ford that she was sexually assaulted by Judge Kavanaugh. I spoke with John Zogby, veteran American pollster from John Zogby Strategies, about how Americans are responding to what's going on. As far as the FBI investigation into Judge Brett Kavanaugh is concerned, I spoke with the number one FBI keynote speaker and 20-year FBI agent Jeff Lanza about what was likely going to happen, how this was going to take place. Major figures in the Judge Kavanaugh hearings may have some serious damage control to do as far as their public images are concerned. That's on both sides of the issue. I spoke with the vice president of one of the largest crisis management firms in the United States. Scott Newark joined me on the program, the former Alberta prosecutor and former president of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, who also served as an executive director for the Canadian Police Association as we spoke about child killers in this country and how they've been treated far more gently than most Canadians would like to see. Scott and I talked about that. We've covered many of these stories. How is Canada's small business community, the number one employer group nationally, responding to the significant challenges requiring resolution? NAFTA, Trans Mountain Pipeline Extension, legalization of marijuana? There are so many questions. Parliamentary hearings this week on Bill C-75. So why would a Liberal MP from Edmonton and a member of the Parliamentary Committee pay absolutely zero attention to a Canadian mother there to testify to her concerns about Bill C-75. Sherry Arsenault was there. She lost her son to a drunk driver. Brad Wall, the former Premier of Saskatchewan and the most popular Premier in this country for many years, spoke with me about Bill C-69, a catastrophe waiting to be unloaded on Canada and Canada's economy. And what's going on with the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension? And how significantly important is all of this as it drifts into the background? Hear what the former Premier had to say. We're going to look at this past week in Washington with Judge Kavanaugh and uh, Dr. Ford and talk to three people who will be able to provide us three completely different perspectives. Coming up uh, on the issue of crisis management, because for individuals involved, whether they're the politicians or the principals, they're in a sort of a crisis world now, and, and, and the crisis management is going to be significant to them. Eric Bernstein will join us. He's the vice president of Bernstein Crisis Management. He'll join us from Los Angeles. Jeff Lanza is a 20-year FBI agent, the number one FBI keynote speaker, and uh, the author of Pistols to Press, Lessons in Communications from an FBI agent and spokesman. He, uh, he has other books as well, so we'll talk to former FBI agent Jeff Lanza about how the investigation is likely to go forward. That's coming up. And my good friend, John Zogby, veteran American pollster, uh, John Zogby Strategies. He's the author of We Are Many, We Are One. And my, I guess my subtitle to that, it's not John's, but it's mine. How Society Has Devolved Into tri Tribalism. John's is uh, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics. 
John, when you, before I ask you about how Americans feel, and thank you for joining us, do you, uh, well, did, did you get a sense of real tribalism from the people who were doing the questioning this week in Washington? Oh, absolutely. You know, a Martian would have been able to tell who was a Republican, who was a Democrat, who was a conservative, and who was a liberal. Um, there was no equivocation here. Um, each side um, was was pretty transparent. And um, while with, <clears throat> within their parameters, each side's parameters, um, you know, a, a, a certain amount of of um, questions about morality and, and questions about um, you know what is right and what's wrong. I mean, the, bo- the bottom line is that they were filtering their information on the basis of prescribed um, uh, uh, ideologies. So the outcome was important. The truth, not so much. Um, truth uh, with within each side's. Um, paradigm of understanding the truth. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a good way of saying it. Do you remember any similar situation in the United States that, that engaged uh, the entire country in the manner that this particular issue has? Well, you know, we did have a very similar situation 27, 28 years ago with the appointment, uh, the nomination of uh, Judge uh, Clarence, Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, the famous Anita Hill. A uh, similar situation where she was charging actually uh, boorish behavior um, and sexual harassment. Uh, let's make it clear that what we're talking about here is alleged criminal behavior. Um, the second uh, thing, uh, you know, going way back, of course, is Watergate. Um, and that divided the country down the middle. But, you know, for Richard Nixon and the Dick Nixon administration, the middle kept moving until the point where it was down to three quarters who opposed him and a quarter uh, that were left. But it certainly captivated the nation like this. So as a a national pollster, and you've been at this for a long time, founder of the world-famous Zogby Survey and senior partner at John Zogby Strategies, what what would you, what do you expect, first of all, what do you expect Americans to be feeling and saying, what are the questions that a pollster has to ask? Well, this is a reckoning. I mean, what I, what I would like to ask is, how do you bridge this? Where are the areas of commonality between the two sides? And, you know, we started to see that late Friday afternoon um, in the persona of the outgoing senator from Arizona, uh, Jeff Flake, who on one hand was saying, well, I'm going to be a good Republican, and I think uh, Judge Kavanaugh uh, comported himself well and deserves to be on the Supreme Court. On the other hand, having been confronted uh, really dramatically by two women as he was entering the elevator who had been uh, uh, victims of sexual predators, he obviously had a, let me call it a come-to-Jesus moment, and said, but how would this hurt if we let it go one more week? And let's investigate it. Let's probe further, uh, because I think a, a, a lot more folks than one expected really felt that Dr. Ford, the accuser, uh, was very credible. And, of course, the obvious question is, why would she do this? 
if she was making it up. I, what, you know, she's a, a successful uh, professor and, and researcher, and I mean, these are not the sorts of things that uh, that women like to talk about, that anybody likes to talk about. So, I mean, she she came off very credible. Uh, and so, uh, to answer your question, what I'm getting at is is that w- with Senator Flake, here's the potential for bridging uh, the gap, and and that's what I that that's the kind of polling I like to do. Focus mm-hmm. on the where the commonalities are, as opposed we already know where the differences are. Yeah, uh, there there are many questions uh, that obviously are going to be asked. I'll be speaking with former FBI agent mm-hmm. uh, in just a moment, uh, Jeff Lanza. I'm wondering how they're uh, uh, approaching the investigation. Is is it a fact-finding mission? Is it a potentially leading toward a criminal investigation? I don't know. We'll ask him about that. Um, then there's also the story that, uh, and it was in the Washington Times this morning, that Dr. Ford's friend, um, what is her name? I have it here among all my papers, has, uh, is saying that she doesn't remember the party and she doesn't remember Brett Kavanaugh. So... There are there are so many uh, questions floating around. I mean, the, Mr. Senator Flake was given marks for having been able to find a compromise ground mm-hmm. for 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 both sides to be able to not settle the situation, but to uh, at least walk away on Friday afternoon, yesterday afternoon, and not uh, at each other's throats. This is going to be fascinating, John. I I thank you for joining us. And as it when it when it when it's all over. And it won't be over, but when the specifics of this particular case are over, I'd like to talk to you again about what you will have found Americans have said. I always enjoy talking to you, Roy. You introduced me as a friend, and I consider myself that. I look forward to it. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. All the best. John Zogby, the the book is uh, We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics. He's the founder of the world-famous Zogby survey. The FBI is going to be engaged, and over a period of days, the Federal Bureau of Investigation is going to be uh, looking into the allegations made against the uh, against Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, joining me on the program to speak to this is Jeff Lanza, the number one FBI keynote speaker and 20-year FBI agent uh, since his retirement from the FBI has presented in 49 states to thousands uh, around the world. He's lectured at Princeton and Harvard universities and was voted the most popular speaker in the 55-year history of Kansas City's prestigious Plaza Club. He's an author. Um, the web page is thelanzagroup.com. And uh, I love the title of one of your books. Um, I'm not saying the others aren't good, but I, I really like Pistols to Press. <laughs> Mr. Lenza, <laughs> you have to be careful what you say. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Roy? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. I have to ask you this. Will this, was the FBI uh, investigation, is it going to be a fact-finding mission, or will it be also nibbling around the edges of a criminal investigation? It's, it's not focused on criminal. Um, you know, if they turn up something criminal, then it becomes a much longer and, and drawn-out investigation. I think it's a fact-finding mission that's focused specifically on the allegations um, that have been made uh, by the woman. And they're going to be, be interviewing other people that may have knowledge of that. And then they take the reports and they send them uh, to the Senate Judiciary Committee, who then reviews it. It's a matter of he said, she said, they said, and that's it. And there's no conclusion drawn by the FBI, only what people uh, know about that incident 
and if there are other witnesses, and then um, if there are new people that turn up and there's more information that turns up from the interviews that they do, those people will be interviewed as well, and that information will be sent to the Senate. Now, if someone claims um, and there's substantive evidence that there's a criminal uh, cover-up or something else that may be a, uh, a criminal violation of law, then we're talking about a much broader investigation. And you can't do that in one week, which is what the Senate is demanding here. No, I was about to ask you whether, I mean, what can be accomplished in one week? You look at what's happened over the last, just over the last two days, or, or three days, as, as your country, and in fact ours, and globally it's been a massive issue. What can you accomplish in, 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 in one week? Can you, can you, can you provide a report, a substantive report on what's, what's been asked to provide? In one week, It'd be diff- it's difficult to do that in one week's time, and the reason why it is is because people have to be located, they have to be interviewed, and that can be done in a week. Um, and if you had enough agents and enough manpower and the right organization, you can do that in, in a week. But then you're going to have people saying, "Well, I really don't remember if we can determine what night I went on vacation in 1982." Um, there's records associated. I stayed at the Hilton Hotel. You know, then we're talking about uh, public records and and uh, subpoena subpoenaing potential uh, organizations for past records, which may take a lot of digging to obtain. If it gets into that type of thing, that's we're talking six months to nine month investigation, um, and so they can't go that far. They can only interview the people that have already been named that may know something about it and determine if they can find out. Uh, excuse me, determine if there were other people at this incident that um, was claimed to have occurred, and they would be interviewed too. That's about all I can do, is interview five or six people, if there are that may be interviewed, and try to substantiate the claims that they're making as best you can. But yeah. not much can be done in a week. Yeah. Who in the Bureau will handle this particular assignment? How do you, how do you select someone to do this particular well, job, because the whole country's looking at, will be the FBI will be under investigation. When I was in the bureau, um, when we had these big investigations, right, like the Oklahoma City bombing case, for instance, and, and other major cases that that I was involved in as a, as, a, as one of the street agents, um, the question always was, so who's the case agent? Now who's in charge of this? And the case agent was Louis Free, the head of the FBI, or Robert Mueller, the head of the FBI. The truth of the matter is, when you have a case this big, you know, the person in charge is the director of the FBI, uh, Christopher Wray. But now, how does, he, how, how does he delegate that down to agents? You have senior agents that have had more than probably 10 to 15 to 20 years experience, uh, supervis- supervisory level, um, higher level management people that are going to be in charge of this case. I, I can guarantee you that they expected this type of thing might happen, and they were prepared for it. They probably already had a command post set up already had people in charge that were named, some vet, veteran agents, experienced agents uh, that have done very, very uh, high-profile investigations and, and been successful at it, already named, ready to go. And as soon as they got the word from the president, uh, to, they, would, they would begin that investigation. They've probably already done many things in the last 12 hours um, uh, on that investigation and to meet, that, to, meet that, to meet the guidelines at the time that's being given to them. If you get a knock on the door... And you open the door, there's an FBI agent standing there, or two. Mm-hmm. Not exactly a comfort zone for most people. Uh, not something they encounter or, or, would, or would expect. Maybe, I mean, the principals involved in this case probably are expecting it. But is it difficult to get people to 
provide you uh, the the truth of what of what's going on when they're I don't want to use the word confronted, but when they're faced with, with by the FBI, it's not like Joe coming over from next door and asking your opinion. Yeah, uh, there's always an intimidation factor, always a, a kind of a factor like um, if I've done anything wrong, and, and you know the people people always say, hey, if you haven't done anything wrong, you have nothing to be fearful of investigation. But people are still intimidated when people show up at your door with sure. Things. Um, and they just don't know, you know, where, where it's going to go. And you can understand that this, it's intimidating for a lot of people and scary. Um, so, so what are they supposed to do? Just tell. Basically, what we tell people is, it, in an interview, you know, they'll ask you if they're smart. They'll say, "Am I the subject of this investigation?" You know, and if you're the subject of an investigation, then you have a right to be scared. If you're not the subject of investigation, then all the FBI is asking you to do is to tell the truth, mm-hmm. regardless of what whether you're the subject or not. It still wants you to tell the truth. Yeah. But if you're a witness in a case, you have nothing to fear. We're not after you. We're not putting you in jail. We just want you to tell us the truth. And if you tell the truth, nothing bad can happen to you, because if you lie to the FBI, then they're going to ask you for that. So well, if you're I, yeah. An investigation, and and I've always told people when I when I come in, hey, am I a witness or am I a target? And nothing can happen to you bad if you tell the truth, and that's all we're asking you to do. All right. So that's really what it comes down okay. to. Okay. Mr. L- Mr. Lanza, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back. I just find your your, 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 your webpage is, is fascinating, the Lanza Group. You've done you've done so much, and, uh, again, really appreciate you coming on the show. Okay. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks. For Bye-bye. Me. Take care now. Yeah. I guess I was intimidated, too. Joining us on the program is Eric Bernstein. He's the vice president of Bernstein Crisis Management. Uh, they're out of uh, the United States, of course, out of Los Angeles, and uh, and and they are high profile and very very expert at what they do. And I, uh, Eric Bernstein is uh, vice president. He joins us. I, I gather that uh, that that your dad wrote that uh, that piece on 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 Senator Blumenthal, uh, where he called him a liar. And I was thinking. That's quite something because Blumenthal is one of the inquisitors, and yet he's a guy who wrote, point painted himself into a corner by lying about his own past. Can you just can you create a situation, Eric, where you just can't extricate yourself, where even you, and I guess that's if somebody tells you the, a lie and and you've taken them on as a client, can, are there situations where you just can't extricate somebody because they're their own worst enemy? Uh, yeah. There are, unfortunately, and sometimes for people like that, the best solution is for them to just go away and shut their mouth for a while. Yeah. Do you think, do you believe, is it your sense that crisis management is going to be necessary for some people next, uh, when the FBI report comes out, some people, not just the two principals or one of the two principals, but it'll be necessary for some of the other people, or will they be able to hide behind uh, sort of their political curtains? I think that the smart ones are already engaging in crisis management. They know they're a part of a case that people feel very strongly about on both sides. Yeah. Uh, and they know that they could become the poster child for something that people aren't uh, very happy about. And it raises the stakes, doesn't it? It must significantly raise the stakes when it's a situation that the entire country and much of the world is absorbed with. Yes, absolutely, especially given that some of the people being pulled in are not career politicians. They're not high-profile in their day-to-day life, um, and they're going to see a major change in their day-to-day life if they wind up at the center of this case. Yeah. I was reading uh, about your 360-degree approach 
to to dealing with clients at uh, Bernstein Crisis, and I I find that fascinating. Uh, would you? How would you approach someone whose name has become familiar with millions of people now, who come to you and say, and somebody comes to you and says, "Help me out. Uh, we I, I need to be able to control the message that's going out." What would you What would you advise? What's the? How do you approach this uh, a, a new client in a situation as high profile as this? Well, the, the number one thing you need to do is you need to figure out what questions you're going to get from any important audience, and you need to have good answers. Uh, and then those answers need to be consistent. If you tell one person a story and there's a slight change in that story when you tell it again, people are going to judge you very harshly for what could be a simple slip of the tongue. Yeah, so clearly, the person, again, takes us back to what we said a couple of minutes ago, the person who's approached you, has to be telling you the truth. Yes, and and we actually are fortunate enough to be able to choose whether we work with people who we feel aren't, and and we choose not to. Um, We'd rather not put our own reputation on the line. No, that's that's important. That's key, because you're advising them, and if they make a mess of their own situation by lying to you coming in, uh, then then that ultimately is going uh, going to reflect on you. What would you advise people not to do? Um... Don't lie, uh, don't assume, and don't spin. Spin is bad. Clarifying is good. So explain where the spin might come in in a situation such as the one we've been observing and that we're talking about. Where where would spin well, become uh, an issue? Well, Mr. Kavanaugh's um, interesting interpretation of his own journal entries and yearbooks, uh, I would say would fall under the category of spin. And it's already come back to bite him a bit because people have refuted his claims. Are you, uh, are, as you look at the last couple of days, are, are you looking at people who may have more of a problem, who might have more need for your professional services than others? Have you been able to distinguish between those who may and those who may not? Well, it's interesting because there's really two sides to crisis management. Sometimes to make your point, to achieve what you want, you create a crisis for someone else. How do you do that? So, so we're really seeing both sides of it here. Okay, so explain to us how that would happen. How, what, would ha- what would be done? Um, well, essentially you bring public opinion to it. it. It's what's happened and it's been a roundabout way and not, um, at least allegedly, not of Ford's will. But, you know, there's been a bit of crisis engineering for Kavanaugh in that people have forced this to come to light. Is it important to get out ahead of the message as much as possible, or is it more, is it, is it more uh, advantageous to wait and see what happens for a while and then respond? As long as you have the facts to do a strong response, it's better to get out in front, always. Can you give us an example of, uh, of, of, of a case or a situation where your company has become engaged and, uh, and have advised, or is that something that's confidential? Um, it, for the most part, they are confidential, unfortunately. I can give you some generalities. Please, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're actually right now working in a situation where uh, a leader of a company who interacts with a lot of younger people and younger females is being faced with uh, some sexual impropriety allegations. Um, this individual is, is willing to take a polygraph, um, and they are being extorted by the person making the allegations. 
And, and so it's really uh, it's a difficult situation because you have to take these allegations very seriously. Uh, but people also know they can use them to damage. So you have to walk a very, very fine line between defending yourself and acknowledging that these types of things do happen and that they're very troublesome. So the final question I have for you then is based on the, what you just said, the final thing that you said, and that is at what time do you decide? When do you, do, do you decide, I really can't handle this myself? I'm just, this hole is getting deeper. I'm getting into more trouble. Whether I'm honest or not, I'm just creating a problem for myself. At what time, when do you turn to a professional? When do you call Bernstein Crisis and say, hey, I need some help here? You know, if the situation has the potential or is already causing serious harm to your personal life, to your professional life, uh, to your financial life, then it's time to get an expert on board. If you let the damage pile up, it may be insurmountable. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Eric Bernstein from uh, Bernstein Crisis um, Management so in Los Angeles. Thanks so much, Eric Bernstein. In 1971, in Canada's Parliament, the then Solicitor General, Jean-Pierre Goyer, spoke these words. We have decided from now on to stress the rehabilitation of individuals rather than the protection of society. We have decided from now on to stress the rehabilitation of individuals rather than the protection of society. And it's still going on. I'm not so sure it's about rehabilitation anymore either because as my uh, friend Serge Leclerc, who spent more than 20 years in specialing handling units in Canada's prisons, late Serge Leclerc, who then became a member of the Saskatchewan legislature, said to me many times, you cannot rehabilitate what isn't habilitated in the first place. Scott Newark uh, is a former, as you know, he's on this show a lot, gives us a lot of his time. Former Alberta prosecutor, uh, also was the president of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, served as the executive director for the Canadian Police Association and a senior policy advisor to a federal minister of public safety, now an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Uh... We've seen this too often, Scott. You and I have talked about these issues. We've gotten to know the parents of murdered children as much as this McClintic story should be a surprise. It isn't. Would you agree? Yeah, it's, um, as you say, it it definitely brings back uh, unfortunate uh, old memories. And uh, uh, several of them, the, the, the one that strikes me right off the top at the beginning of this was that this is another demonstration of our say one thing, do another justice system, where people, you know, suddenly learn. They, they think that, for example, you know, it's the greatest denunciatory sentence available, life imprisonment, no parole eligibility for 25 years, only to find out that, oops, you know, behind closed doors without notice to them, that this has taken place where this individual uh, is transferred as uh, she is. And that, that has a really... It can have a horrific impact on uh, people. Um, I remember encountering it specifically with the, uh, remember in the Faint Hope Clause, where it, uh, it was that supposedly, uh, you know, first-degree murder meant uh, life imprisonment, but this is Canada, so uh, life means uh, no parole 25 years, but actually pursuant to the Faint Hope Clause at that time, it actually meant parole eligibility at 15 years. And thanks to Section 746, the clock started running from the time the person was arrested if they were in custody. 
So, you know, families literally discovered that what they had been told and from their perspective lied to by the justice system. Uh, and that had a, a really, really traumatic impact on people. And I suspect that is exactly the case with this, is that as terrible as this was, there was at least a societal denunciation. And now about a third of the, uh, the way through her parole ineligibility, they suddenly find out she's transferred to a joint medium minimum security prison that, as you say, has, you know, got some uh, fairly uh, comfy, or as her dad said, uh, the victim's dad said, has got some comfy uh, living circumstances that can have a really, really uh, significant re-victimization impact on people. And it's made worse, and I think, because there's a real sense of betrayal that I I recall in dealing with, uh, with victims. And to have the minister responsible describe these horrific crimes as Bad practices. I know. Outrageous. It is outrageous. It's absolutely. He's been around. You know, Scott. He's been around for so many. Yeah, governments. I was going to say. I'm actually quite surprised that Ralph Goodale would say such a stupid. Do thing. you remember? And I, I wrote this in my uh, blog piece in my post. Make child killers pay. Uh, Carla Homolka, who was with her ghoulish husband. Paul Bernardo, who has an opportunity at uh, parole hearing next month in a matter of days, uh, she was uh, incarcerated in a condo unit in Quebec where she and her friends had their own rooms with their own keys, and they would have girls' night in parties, right? And they ordered pizza from the local pizza joint. This is a woman who committed the most ghoulish acts and would be incarcerated along with Bernardo, at least as far as time to be served is concerned, if she hadn't made the deal with the devil. Yeah. This isn't this isn't so unusual. There was also the case of, uh, of uh, five-year-old Kimmy Thompson, Kimberly Thompson, who was abducted and murdered in 1980 by uh, Harold Smelter, who yep. then drowned her in a bathtub and disposed of her body in a garbage bag. This guy was actually released. And when he told the parole board that he had feelings for an underage girl he'd seen on the street, the parole board said, well, you told us about it, so that makes it, I guess, okay, and you're well on your way to reintegration into society. That just happened last year. Yeah, you see, what I think this case also reveals is something that you and I have dealt with over the years, and that is that there is a very different culture within um, Correctional Services of Canada. Um, one of the people that's been cited in the, uh, in the different articles about this, uh, talking down to people like you and I, um, is uh, former head of the Elizabeth Fry Society, now Senator Kim Pate. And I'll always remember a line that I, I disagree on almost everything with Kim, but she's not stupid. And uh, she has a very different ideological uh, view of things. And I remember she articulated at one time that I thought summed it up. Uh, people are sent to uh, prison... Um, Uh, as punishment, not for punishment. And as a result, you get this culture inside of, you know, reducing security classifications, of allowing people, for example, in this case, it's not at all certain that the the killer, uh, Ms. McClintock, is actually even Aboriginal, but even if she she is, much to the surprise and horror of people, our legislation essentially authorizes non-Aboriginals to take advantage of Aboriginal uh, incarceration centers or healing centers. I've sat in on parole board hearings 
or some, you know, con artist is uh, telling the parole board, oh, yeah, you know, I found Jesus and everything is wonderful. And, and, and yet the culture that I think exists within Correctional Services of Canada uh, is that, um, you know, um, exactly as you articulated at the outset, which is that the focus is on rehabilitation. And the reality is that I, I think, unfortunately, there is this sense that it's a one-size-fits-all, and you don't distinguish on the basis of, for example, repeat offenders or even the horrific circumstances of what uh, caused the person to be incarcerated in the first place. Yeah, you know, for many people, this is their first encounter with Canada's justice system, these stories about McClintock being moved to the healing lodge. For others who've been around a little longer, it's another in a series. And that line again from 1971, spoken in Canada's Parliament, by the then Solicitor General Jean-Pierre Goyer was, we have decided from now on to stress the rehabilitation of individuals rather than the protection of society. Now, I'm sure it's completely coincidental, but the Prime Minister at that time was Pierre Trudeau. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about that other, the other story as well, the uh, one about Chris, Christopher Garnier, who murdered the right, police officer. That, yeah. Can I just, because this is important, can I just add a couple of points to this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, first of all, one of the things that's been in the, the news, of course, is whether or not the uh, decision was um, lawful or appropriate or, you know, what the government can or can't do. Um, I did a little poking around in the legislation, okay? Um, I think it is correct that the minister does not and should not have the authority to simply say, change your decision in this case. But here's something that uh, is important. Uh, pursuant to Section 114 of the regulations under the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, before a transfer is made to the uh, Aboriginal community, such as was done in this case, the commissioner or a staff member uh, must have uh, con uh, conducted consultations with the original, uh, with, sorry, with the Aboriginal community. We know from the media that that was never done that the, uh, the local Aboriginal community said that they were never consulted with. That means that the act wasn't followed. That means that it can be overturned, okay, number one. Number two, should that in fact turn out to be the case, the individuals responsible for that should be held accountable. Nothing will change if people who abuse their authority or don't follow the rules uh, are not held accountable. Number three, we need, as we have over so many years, we need to learn from these horrific circumstances and make changes to the laws and the regulations so this, can't, this kind of stuff can't happen in the future. I would suggest that the, and I, I wouldn't count on, frankly, the current government to introduce the legislation. So, Mr. Shear, I hope you're listening. You need to prepare legislation that would give victims a statutory right to full information about the, quote, offender's progress including any offenses committed and a right to be heard on any security reclassifications or transfers. Okay, that needs to be in the legislation so they can't get around it. Same thing with the Aboriginal groups where there is a, a recommended uh, transfer and actually put into the legislation the requirement of them, Correctional Service of Canada, taking into account public interest and justice system confidence as well as the principles of the sentence imposed before minimizing security classifications, and you could even put in um, a, a prohibition against this kind of a, a, a minimization of security classification or eligibility for this kind of placement for somebody serving crimes against uh, a, a murder charge. 
against uh, as a murder charge or murder charge against children. There are things we could do to change legislation, uh, but this is the kind of thing that needs to happen, is we need to change this so that the people at Correctional Service of Canada has le- have less opportunity to screw up. Well, everything you just said. Here, let me go back to uh, question, uh, question you on something. Who is the person or who are the people within government or outside government? Who are the people who have the absolute power to hold the individuals who made the decision to account? Uh, it is the, uh, the Don't tell me it's the government because yeah, it's not going it to happen. The minister and ultimately therefore the prime minister. Well, forget about it then until the next government. Um, I tell you something, the more precise you are on this stuff and as I say, that's why I did a, spent some time and took a look at the legislation. If you can point out that, in fact, that this took place, that gives the, the authorization. And, in fact, if necessary, you could even, I think, probably bring a legal action against the minister to compel him to follow the law. But in, in, and we've seen this before. We have seen this before. You remember when we exposed the 50-50 quota system? That's right. 50% in, 50% out. Once it, once it got exposed, it ultimately forced them, they blinked a couple of times, they ultimately forced them uh, to shut it down. And i got to tell you as well, too, when I read about this, this has the feel of that kind of activity. So I hope when somebody's doing the review of this, they uh, check it out and make sure that this isn't some internal CSE policy, uh, that what we're seeing is a yeah. manifestation. So here's an, opportunity, here's an opportunity for Andrew Scheer and the Conservative 100%. Party, right? Or, or, uh, or, or uh, Mr. Bernier... Uh, Maxime Bernier your, your and, and his fledgling party, or the NDP, to... Uh, to I wouldn't wait for the NDP. To well, I'm, I'm not waiting for them either, but I'm just saying it's an opportunity exists to do exactly what you said. Yes, it's doable. And, and look, if you look back at all of the changes that have been made on the kinds of cases, we don't have the faint hope clause anymore. We now allow for consecutive parole and eligibility on multiple murder cases. Victims have a right to attend and make submissions at, at parole hearings. When we started talking about all this stuff, none of that existed. You had a lot to do with that. You had a, you had a lot. I know you're, you're, uh, you don't want to take credit for things, but you had a lot to do with, A, informing people like me in this business, and also then by extension informing Canadians who decided that they didn't want things to be the way they were. You had a lot to do in, in changing the way things were. Now, we yeah. still have a situation... Well, this happened a few years ago. You may recall, I think you were on the air with me at the time. We had a, I'd received a phone call from a guard, somebody who said he was a guard at Kingston Prison. And he was absolutely outraged to the fact that uh, Paul Bernardo was receiving trailer time, yes. conjugal trailer time, with somebody Correctional Service Canada they, had, had... They actually uh, called it the Boom Boom Room. That's right, the Boom Boom Room. And they, had, they decided that this person Bernardo claimed was a spouse or a whatever he claimed, yeah, was legitimate. And so, and, and so when we called Correctional Service Canada on the air to find out if this was happening, you remember what they said, Mr. Bernardo has his privacy, privacy rights. rights. Yes. Which, frankly, to use the technical term, is bull bleep. Okay. Taro poo But, but, but yeah. that's the point, though. And, and you know, it's funny... I got that uh, that insight from working as a prosecutor. Yeah, buddy, I've only got 20 seconds. I'm sorry, but... Bottom line is that there are solutions. You dig down into it, and you don't just accept that that's the way that it's got to be. We can fix things. Thanks for everything you do. You as well, my friend. Take care, Scott. Bye-bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney. We've spoken a lot about the investor confidence in this country. And uh, Tom Caldwell, the chairman of Caldwell Securities, told us that 
with the mess surrounding Trans Mountain's extension, the pipeline extension, and Bill C-69, and by the way, Brad Wall will, will be with us on that later, um, that international investor confidence has really taken uh, quite a hit. And that's big business confidence. Now, what about the smaller business entities in this country? The number one employers in Canada, the small business community, the entrepreneurial community in Canada, they're the number one job creators. How do they respond? How do they react? How do they project? How do they plan when all around them seems to be a whirlpool moving in multiple directions? Dan Kelly is the president and chief executive officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Mr. Kelly joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dan, thank you very much for the time. And on the issue of confidence, I saw a, a release from the Alberta office of the CFIB, AB Small Business Confidence, worst in the country in September. What's the, uh, what's the overall level of confidence, given everything that's going on, everything that's gone on, and the level, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there is uncertainty. What's the level of confidence among the entrepreneurial community who create most of the jobs in Canada today? What's, what's the level of confidence? So overall across the country, Roy, it is pretty mixed. Uh, we are seeing some parts of the country where optimism is rising. That's, uh, that seems to be the case in Quebec right now. We saw some gains in Ontario as well very recently. But in much of the country, the overriding feeling, the overriding measure that we have, uh, that we take, suggests that there is mixed data uh, and, and a great deal of worry and anxiety about what's to come. And that's obviously having a, a, a significant effect on business growth, business expansion. And Alberta's at the rock bottom of that. They've been hit, obviously, there's been, you know, there are a few bright spots happening, I suppose. But... But overall, the Alberta business optimism is uh, is as bad is as bad as it gets. Uh, lowest in the country, uh, the, all Atlantic provinces are more optimistic than Alberta right now, uh, and and that's saying something. That is because Alberta used to be the uh, it was the standard, the gold standard. It sure was. We had you know the for years and years when I looked at the measure of the shortage of workers that, uh, that was facing, that, that was a, a plaguing Alberta businesses back in 2007, 2008, uh, that, that issue has, has come back, but it's come back elsewhere than Alberta. It's now a big issue in Quebec, for example, where our members there have the highest degree of shortages of, of workers of anywhere in the country right now. So the, the economy has shifted. There are, again, bright spots and, and, and less bright spots. Uh, but Alberta has, you know, uh, certainly nobody blames the uh, commodity route on, uh, on on the Alberta government, but they sure haven't helped themselves by adding all sorts of bad policy, re- literally every bad policy idea imaginable to the mix to, to reduce small business optimism in the province. Dan, when you talk about things being somewhat brighter or appearing somewhat brighter based on what your Ontario members are telling you, the Ontario small business community, how much of that do you think has to do with the fact that the wind government is gone and was replaced by the government of Doug Ford. Well, look, I, you know, while there was perhaps no love lost between a lot of entrepreneurs and, and the Wynn government, it, it really is the policy change that has, uh, that has brightened uh, the, the outlook for small businesses in Ontario over the last little while. Uh, just this past week, we uh, had announced that there will be an average of a 30% reduction in workers' compensation-related costs, WSIB in Ontario, 
that certainly is welcome news for, for a lot of small and medium-sized firms. A 30% cut in payroll taxes for workers' comp is, is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, we also have right now uh, in, in Ontario... Uh, some some changes to cannabis legislation that is you know that, that finally is involving a role for the private sector so so that's good news. The freeze on minimum wage policy is a big deal for a lot of our members and I I, I hate to say that but that has I think contributed to some of the bad uh, the redu- the reduction in optimism in Alberta is that they have moved forward their plans to get to a fifteen dollar minimum wage in Ontario they're taking a break at the fourteen dollar level. And while we've already had a 21% increase just uh, just in January, it is good news for a lot of small firms that, that at least the pain has stopped. The government has also talked about rolling back some of the other pro-union labor laws that, uh, that had been passed by the previous government not that long ago. So lots of bright spots in Ontario right now, and, and that certainly couldn't come. Uh, it, it is desperately, desperately needed. Well, and we remember that these are the people who put their, put their life savings, put their their money where their mouths are, and uh, and they're the ones who invest in the community. They're the ones who own the smaller businesses, who do most of the uh, most of the employing in this country. Before I take a quick break and come back to you, Dan, what's the percentage of jobs created by small businesses in this country? It used to it used to be something like fifty four percent. What is it now? Do you know? Yeah, so over half of private sector employment uh, is uh, is in small and me- sorry, sixty percent of of private sector employment is in small and medium sized firms. But interestingly, now half of Canada's gross domestic product is contributed by small and medium sized firms. So uh, together, they they constitute the majority of Canada's growth and success, and and uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have to take all of these discussions so very seriously and not dismiss them. As, uh, as, as small, low-wage employers. They're absolutely not. Yeah. Americans are finding that uh, Tafta, NAFTA negotiations are tough because Canadians are tough negotiators. Is that, is, that what, is that true, Dan Kelly? Is that what's going on in, as far as your perspective is concerned as president, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business? You know, it's hard to tell. I, I look, I've been. We've had lots of disagreements with government, uh, certainly on small business tax changes, a whole host of other files. On trade-related policy, they, I, I would say the government's been doing a reasonably good job. Uh, but you know, we are nervous about what's happening right now, and it's hard to tell sometimes as to uh, how 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 well our government is doing in these trade negotiations. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, though. I, I have okay. to tell you. I, I think the Pope would have a hard time negotiating a trade deal with Donald Trump right now. While there are some countries that, that seem to be able to do it, uh, there are major concessions that many of the U.S.'s trading partners are making. Canada is fighting hard. I hope that we're going to get something. There is some reason for optimism right now. Uh, but, you know, Canadian small businesses are worried, and that's one of the reasons optimism levels have have depressed a little bit over the last little bit, because there are there's a quarter of small firms that export outside of Canada's borders and over half that import directly from, from the U.S. or overseas. And they're waiting on bated breath to hear what's going to happen. Well, the reason that I brought up this point is that you're heading off to Europe next week. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and I would imagine at least part of that trip has to do with the fact that NAFTA is involved in a, in a cloud of uncertainty. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, I'm I'm going to Can- I'm going to Europe uh, to both Italy and to uh, to Belgium to Brussels uh, to do a little bit of CETA promotion, the the uh, our trade agreement with the European Union. 
there are a lot of small businesses that right now are looking farther afield. They're not waiting to see what's going to happen with NAFTA. They are looking to see if they can establish greater trade links with, with Europe. Uh, that happened during the economic meltdown when, in, you know, in 2008, when the U.S. economy was, was in bad, bad shape. Many small Canadian small firms, more Canadian small firms, started to diversify and look at markets farther afield. Uh, and, and so CETA provides a lot of small companies with some great opportunities and also for, for European firms to look at, the, at, at partnerships with Canadian small and medium-sized companies. I don't know that we fully capitalized on this, but I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's very timely with NAFTA uncertainty to continue to wave the flag and remind businesses that there are opportunities, good ones, uh, it, to, in markets uh, either to the east uh, with the, the trade agreement to, with Pacific Rim nations and also to, uh, sorry, to the to the west in the Pacific Rim and to the east in Europe. So we're uh, we're looking to do a bit of both. And I'm going to be uh, waving the Canadian flag next week in in both Italy and in Brussels. How much concern is there about investment in into this country? I spoke with uh, Tom Caldwell, the chairman of Caldwell Securities, at the time of the uh, court decision concerning the uh, Trans Mountain Extension. And uh, Mr. Caldwell said, you know, as far as financial capital investment in this in Canada is concerned, it's a major concern. How does this impact on 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 the smaller and medium-sized businesses in in Canada? And do you share that that concern that uh, if we don't get off our off our duffs as far as pipelines are concerned, then there's going to be economic price to be paid? Look, the the uh, the what's happening with with respect to the the challenges to get a pipeline built uh, is absolutely affecting Canada's overall business reputation. This is far, this extends far beyond just the oil and gas sector and all the spin-off industries associated with it. It really does affect Canada's overall business reputation. When you add to that, of course, some of the changes that were made to small business tax policy last year, Canada is starting to become a less attractive market in which to invest. And, and that seems to be at odds with government attempts to try to encourage more foreign direct investment into, into our country. So this is a big concern. We need to get the regulatory regime right in Canada. There has been some progress made. And in fact, we recently complimented the federal government for some recent changes to small business regulatory regime. But we absolutely got to get these projects uh, going. Uh, I know that there is some work the feds are doing right now i want to believe that they're going to be able to to pull this off um but uh, it can't come soon enough there are Mm -hmm. there are small firms that are directly affected right now tons of our members right now in the oil and gas sector are saying they don't know how much longer they can hold on even with the uh, recent rise in commodity prices that the industry has seen yeah we only have 20 seconds so we don't have a lot of time but uh for for this one but cpp is going up next year you reminded me about that january 1 yeah, no, you know, this is the other big piece of bad news. Canada's payroll tax yeah. burden is going up. Everyone's, every Canadian's paycheck okay. will go down on January 1st. Small firms are really worried about it, and we've got, we're, we're trying to convince the Ford government to pull the plug on okay. this as the provinces have a role. Dan, thank you so much. Uh, have a good trip to Europe. We'll talk to you when you get back. Thanks so much, Ray. Dan Kelly, President, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. We spoke with Sherry last week because she was heading off to Ottawa to appear at a parliamentary committee hearing on Bill C-75. Sherry has concerns about that piece of legislation, omnibus legislation, and many other Canadians do as well. And uh, Sherry is back with us. Sherry, thank you for coming back to uh, to the program. Uh, 
what happened at the uh, what happened at the hearing? How I guess I'm asking you, how were you treated? Well, uh, you know, I I will admit it's uh, it's exhausting and it's uh, a lot of hard work and research to go into giving a brief and a written uh, verbal presentation and and we I came out of it very disheartened. The Liberal members appeared to be completely disinterested in my testimony on the reclassification of serious offenses. And your concern is the Bill C-75 will make it easier for individuals like the, like, like the, like the, the, the man who killed your son and two of your son's friends, who is all, already uh, living essentially uh, a regular life. He checks into prison at night, minimum security. Right. Yes, I mean, this bill is proposing to take 136 indictable offenses down to summary convictions and, uh, you know, with uh, prosecutorial, uh, you know, choice. It would be their choice. And, I mean, these these crimes are serious crimes, and they range everywhere from terrorism, assault with a weapon, uh, impaired driving causing bodily harm, and uh, they're proposing to, you know, to be able to bring them down so that they could be, you know, as little as a fine to a maximum of two years. I was thinking about you, and I was thinking about everything that you must be experienced and have experienced and what you and uh, Families for Justice are trying to accomplish in this country. And and you going to Ottawa to meet, or at least speak before a parliamentary commission on this legislation. When I spoke to you before the program and you told me that liberal MPs have been totally indifferent to your presence, one was, uh, I understand, just playing with his mobile phones. Two of them had paid no attention to what you were saying. Yes, I mean, uh, for three years now, ever since this government was elected in, I've, I've tried you know, in as many ways possible to get a meeting with our justice minister, to even meet with, you know, a, a liberal MP. And it's been uh, next to impossible. They're inaccessible. They don't want to hear from victims. In my in my viewpoint, they, you know, it's it's been next to impossible to even get a response from them. So you sat there and you brought, you, you, you brought what you felt was heartfelt and important for them to know and consider, but it was a lost exercise, I gather, because they've made up their minds. The legislation's going to go, whether you like it or not, whether anybody likes it or not, they're going to do it, and you were just a nuisance. It, it, it seemed like it was just an exercise, you know, that they had to uh, uh, listen to my testimony. I was on the stakeholders' witness list. I mean, when there was the opportunity came for meaningful questions, and they did not ask a single one. Uh, you know, to me, it, it, it's just quite obvious that they're not interested in the victims. They're more interested in the, what, to me uh, by their questioning of other witnesses, witnesses that were actually pro pro criminal, is best way I can describe. They're they're more interested in the offenders. They, to me, their questioning turns the offenders into the official victims. So the, the people who were there to speak favorably about Bill C-75 and more than less represented the interests of criminal offenders, those people were treated with more interest, shall we say, oh, than yes. you were. 
Oh yes, by 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 a country mile. Uh, but what is interesting is even the the you know stakeholders and groups that are you know the best way I could describe it is pro criminal. They they believe in more rehab have rehab and less jail time. They don't even agree with the hybridization of, of uh, offenses. They're worried the sentences would be too long. They would take a fine and turn it into six months, or you know. So, so there's actually nobody. It's a train wreck of a bill. It's uh, there's nobody in agree agreement with this bill. You know, at the very least, they owed you the courtesy of listening, paying attention while you were speaking, and then the courtesy of a question or two after you'd spoken, just to. Uh, you know, even if they had no interest in what you had to say, which was wrong anyway, but to uh, at least for appearance sake, not be so so casually indifferent and dismissive as to not even care. Sherry, we're going to yeah, stay. In, we're going to stay in touch, and we're we'll, we're going to talk again, you and I, on on bringing uh, Marquita Collius on and, and some other members of Families for Justice. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much. We really appreciate you uh, helping us out with uh, spreading. The word about yeah. this, uh, Bill. We will. Thanks a lot. We will. Take care, Sherry. Okay. The most popular premier of British of uh, Saskatchewan. Almost, I almost had you transferred. If I had you, if you were the premier of Saskatchewan, of British Columbia, we wouldn't have a problem with the with the issue of, of the pipeline. It would be, it would have been resolved. How are you? Mr. There would probably be there would be less problems. Let's just say less that less problems. There might be still some issues, but the. Well, whatever issues they were, they would be different because there would be a government in, uh, in British Columbia that understood uh, uh, that uh, this project's obviously in the national interest. And uh, it's a slippery slope, right? As a province, when you start opposing goods running through your jurisdiction, um, gets pretty subjective as to uh, you know what you might allow in the future because uh, those trains are full of uh, all manner of things that unload at the port uh, there in BC. So yeah, it's. Uh, uh, it would probably be a little bit different anyway, Roy. How are yeah, you? I'm well. How are you doing? You're enjoying life after politics? I sure am. I'm grateful for uh, the various engagements. I have I basically set up a business, and so it has many. Uh, it has a number of different activities. I'm I am doing some consulting. I have a, the major engagements with Oldsler, um, Hoskin and Harcourt LLP, a, a national, one of the leading national law firms in the country, and I'm I'm grateful for that. And there's a few other engagements I have, and I'm doing public speaking and, oh, uh, dabbling in cow-calf pairs, and, you know, just, I should probably call the business non-sequitur, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. Okay. The last job I had, Roy, I want to be clear, it's the best job I'll ever, I'll ever have. Um, it was a great, big, the honor of my working life, uh, but this is uh, also very, very enjoyable, and the province is in very good hands under the leadership of Premier Mo, who's, uh, uh, who's doing great things. Uh, he's been on the air with us quite a few times. I like him a lot. Uh, I don't think your political career is over, by the way, and neither do most Canadians. We think that uh, there's a there's a key with your name on it for 24 Sussex Drive at some point, uh, maybe a point of your choosing. But I won't I won't take you there for, for now unless you want to. Uh, no, uh, no, I, I'm I'm not done with politics. I'm happy to confirm and announce on the Roy Green Show, but I ain't running for anything. I'm going to stay involved in politics. Just not a elected politics and if there's a key for me for that house to speak of it's uh i don't know maybe to go in and uh check and see if the alarm's working for whoever actually lives there or some other role 
Uh, Bill C-69, before we get to the pipeline issue, let me just ask you to address Bill C-69. What is most, what is most wrong with that piece of legislation? First of all, I like that Andrew Scheer is branding this in question period this week and in his efforts as the pipeline-killing bill, because effectively that's what it is. It, uh, the bill is a, a liberal bill seeking to establish a new environmental impact agency to replace the process that we have uh, now. Um, and, um, I mean, first of all, the pipelines are sort of front and center in the national discourse, and so uh, that's what we think of when we when we look at a bill like this. How would it affect any uh, the chance for any new pipeline or maybe an expansion of an existing one like TMX in the future. But the bottom line, of course, is this, Roy, that any natural resource, any project in the, in the, in the future of our country that would require uh, a federal environmental impact will be there, therefore subject to the terms of the Bill C-69 if it passes unchanged. And so Bill C-69 is a concern because of the uncertainty, the increased uncertainty that it brings to industry, at a time when we need, obviously, more certainty, we see a capital flight from our country, 30 to $40 billion from the energy sector alone since last March, uh, and not necessarily to other sectors of the economy, but other energy sectors in and other countries. We've seen what happened with TMX, where the government had to go full Venezuela to try to get the thing done. Uh, they had canceled Gateway. Uh, energy East was killed on a de facto basis by the liberal changes to the NEB process that would require a pipeline to be measured by both upstream and downstream uh, emissions. Uh, that's unique, by the way. No other sector is required uh, to do that. So the cumulative effect of all of this has been very uh, has been to undermine our investment brand. It's, uh, in fact, more than that, we've seen capital flight. 69 makes it worse, uh, demonstrably worse. It, it, it introduces measurements such as what is the sexual and gender identity impact, what's the intersection of the project with sexuality and gender identification. You know, I'm, I am, I have the honor of being a, an advisor of sorts, having an engagement with that firm I mentioned with Osler. I'm surrounded by lawyers who are among the leaders in this country who have been in the trenches, uh, you know, basically defending against and or trying to uh, seek injunctions to get projects to move forward. Uh, who are regulatory experts who are, and who aren't political, who just, for the most part, are not. Olsner took the unique step, Roy, of preparing their own brief to the House of Commons Committee considering C-69 because they were so concerned, because they believe this would introduce greater uncertainty. And we've seen the Canadian Pipeline Association say if this bill's passed, it is there, there will be another not, not another pipeline built in the country. So it's serious. 68 is kind of a companion bill that, has the same impact for the offshore oil industry, which still has huge potential for us uh, as Canadians. And so I think it's important we, we get to know 69. Maybe we take Shear's lead and call it what it is, the pipeline ban bill, so because C-69 sounds pretty innocuous, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and fight this thing. Yeah. Well, they also have to keep in mind, and it's not really difficult to find, because we spoke with the uh, deputy chair of uh, TD Bank, the former premier of of New Brunswick, Frank McKenna, who pointed out the TD study shows $117 billion was lost over a seven-year period at selling our oil at a discount to our only customer. Because we don't have pipelines. Right. So the United States, our only customer, we lost $117 billion that would otherwise have gone into the Canadian economy. I don't It's not rocket science. As we like to say, it's not rocket science. Uh, Premier, what in, in the 30 seconds we have left, what's the future of pipelines in Canada? Uh, is it going to take a change of government to make it a viable reality? 
Well, first of all, very quickly on McKenna's comment, and it's absolutely correct. What's more perverse about it is we sell oil at a discount, the Western Canadian discounted price to Americans, and they sell it back to us in the central And I have, to, I have 10 seconds. Canada I'm sorry. I just have 10 seconds. Price. So the future, the future of pipelines is that in 69th past, I think the Pipeline Association has said we won't build anymore. Uh, and so unless there's change from within this government, uh, we have a bad situation. We'll need a new government. Premier Wall, always good talking to you. Thank you for the time. All the very best, Roy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 